We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter this morning, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go and listen to um, our, our intern Owen's uh, uh, exposition last week on the passage of Matthew 18. It was, it was excellent. Uh, he did a great job, and um, I told him the two, the two I think, uh, the hardest things I do on a Sunday morning are preach, and then leading congregational prayer. So I figured I'd throw him through the gauntlet <laughs> and have him do both um, this summer. So um, as a church, over this, uh, this year, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and a, a couple weeks ago, we took, started a break, and then Owen took us on a break of our break, and so this week, it's a break from our break, from our break, from our break, I think, uh, in Second Peter what we saw as we opened up the, the letter to, of Second Peter was this, that Second Peter was written for our assurance. It, it was written so that we could have assurance to make our calling certain, to, to make our election certain. And it was written so that you and I can have confidence, so that we, we can have um, confirmation that we really are God's people. And the way that we have that assurance, the way that we have that confidence is in the precious and very great promises. Uh, we see this in the first part of Second Peter that um, that it says this in First Peter or Second Peter one three and four says His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us to uh, by, granted us His precious and very great promises. And so His promises. Uh, are, are the ultimate ground of our assurance. Um, there is nothing that can assure you that you are the child of God like the promises of God. That God's promise to you that he really will take your sins and he really will remove it. He really has nailed it to Jesus on the cross. That he really has united you to Christ and made you a partaker of the divine nature. The promises of God are the ultimate ground for our assurance. A secondary ground for our assurance, as we talked about two weeks ago, is our works. Because they show that the promises of God are actually working in our life. Because once you receive, for example, the forgiveness that Christ offers on the cross, once you receive the, the forgiveness and the justification, once you, once you are found in Him and have a righteousness not your own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 3, once you have that, then it ought to make you a more forgiving person. Once you've received the forgiveness that God gives in the gospel, you ought to become more forgiving. You also ought to be someone who forgives. That if the promises of God are real, and if you've accepted them, you've put your faith in them, you've taken hold of them, and you're producing fruit, that should give you confidence. Your good works are not a ground of assurance in the sense that they earn you salvation, but rather they tell you that the engine is really working in your heart, that, that you really have put your faith in Christ, and that faith has really led to fruit. And of course, that leads us to the question, if the promises of God are the ultimate ground of our assurance, how can I trust them? How can I trust the promises of God? How, how do I know that those are true and, and worthy? How do I know that what he's told me in his word is trustworthy? In other words, can I trust the Bible? And that's the question that we have before us this morning. Our text this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we pray one more time that you would open up your word to us, that your word about your word that your, your scriptures about your son would become clear to us, that your spirit would open up these pages and these words and these letters that we might know and be confirmed. Father, that we could trust in your promises that you've given to us in your word. And so we pray for that this morning. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Can I trust the Bible? There, there are certain things as a pastor that you learn are intellectual objections to Christianity. Um, And there are plenty of people who would raise this intellectual objection to Christianity, that they would uh, raise all kinds of questions about whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. And there are certain things as a pastor that you learn that are normal uh, layman's reasonable objections to Christianity. And then every now and then you find that there are these issues that it's where these two worlds merge where the intellectual objections to the Bible somehow have a kinship to normal doubts and everyday doubts that we would have about the Scriptures. And, and the point of this is that our, this is not an abstract, irrelevant question. This is not an ivory tower discussion, but this discussion really matters. I mean, can you trust the Bible when your adult child is walking out of step with scriptures and they they ask that you would just be okay with the way they're living their life? Can you trust the Bible when you have a chance to get ahead at work, but it requires you sacrificing your integrity and your character? Can you trust the Bible when you know that there's this commitment that you've made to the people at the church and yet there's this other fun thing that you want to do? Can you trust the Bible? Can you trust the promises that God has made? When you are in the, the darkest of valleys, and there is no sun, and Scripture says that God justifies sinners, and you are burdened with your own guilt and shame, can you trust that God could justify you? This is not an abstract, irrelevant question. How we know... If we can trust the Bibles is of the utmost importance. And I want to encourage you today because this, my prayer is that this sermon would not seem too ethereal, that it wouldn't seem too abstract, that it wouldn't seem too cerebral, but rather that you would take it and hear what God has for us. Certainly, I would hope that I can be thorough, but my, my hope is that what God has for us in his word would 
penetrate into all of our hearts. Amen? Let me try again. Amen? Amen? All right. I know we're the frozen chosen, but... So, with that being said, uh, two, two outline headings that I'm probably going to ignore. One, the normal ways of knowing. The normal ways of knowing. And two, the Spirit's way of knowing. Spirit as in a possessive. So there's an apostrophe and an S, not spirits as in plural. The normal ways of knowing and the Spirit's way of knowing. The normal way of knowing and the Spirit's way of knowing. Uh, in, in verses 16 through 18, Peter gives us an example of how we normally know things. What is normal and average, how every single person in this room knows anything. And he uses an illustration from his own life, namely the transfiguration. Why the transfiguration? We'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to point this out in verse 16. This is super important. Peter starts off by saying, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Listen to that. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Peter, and I believe God, want you to know the truth. Peter, and, 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 and as we'll see, God, want you to know the truth. Nobody in this room, nothing in this book is hiding from the truth. Nothing here is arbitrary or speculative. We're not running from the light. We're running to the light. Peter wants you to know the truth. Every now and then you will, you'll, you'll hear people say things like the Bible is arbitrary, like the Bible is, it doesn't have any relevance, that it's just some rules that somebody wrote in a book thousands of years ago, and that's, not, that's just simply not how the authors of the Bible thought about it. Peter here says, we didn't make this up. In fact, we were not deceived. We, no, nobody came and told me a great story, and I couldn't come up with anything better, so I believed in it. We, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there, he almost certainly is referring to the incarnation, how Christ came down and, and was indwelt. And uh, he, he, sorry, he indwelt human nature and the two, two natures, one person, one, uh, both God and man. And he said, we, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, we, we saw it ourselves of his majesty. Now, that word eyewitnesses is super important because there's almost nothing that you know which is not dependent on eyewitness uh, testimony. There's almost nothing that you know that is not dependent on eyewitness testimony at some level. So, for example, when I was learning how to drive, my dad took me out to a very sparsely driven road and sat me in the driver's seat and very patiently showed me how to manipulate the, the wheel and, and the clutch because stick shift is how we'll all be driving in heaven. And he, yeah, two of us, two or three, all right. He, and he showed me how to use the wheel. And in order to actually learn how to drive, I, I had to listen to his testimony, right? I, I had... No experience of it myself at that point, and I had to take his word as true. That's the same way with your computer. Uh, to, to work on the sermon this week, I hit some buttons, and I, I clacked some keys, and some figures came up on my computer screen, and I don't know why that works. I, went, I say this all the time. I went to the wrong kind of college for that. 
I did not, I don't know why a computer works the way that it does. I trust that it does. Somebody told me it did and I trust it and it works. There's almost nothing that you know that is not eyewitness testimony. And anyone who tells you differently is lying to you. There's, there's just not, almost nothing that you know that is not based on eyewitness testimony where you have to believe what somebody tells you and to test if that is true. That's just the way that we know. It's just what it means to be human. And Peter demonstrates this with an illustration pointing to one of the the most profound experiences of his life, uh, the transfiguration. So he says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And when Peter's saying this, he's saying you can trust, you can trust what I'm telling you is true because I was there. I was an eyewitness testimony. He's not saying don't verify it because notice how he uses the plural here in verse 18. We, well, who are the we? Well, we know that there are are other people who are with uh, Peter on the mountain who saw it, his own brother. So if anybody's going to point out that Peter's a liar, it's his brother, his own brother, and then James and John. That there, there, there are four people on the mountain, and Peter is saying, hey, you can verify it, but sooner or later you're going to have to trust my testimony. But that's not the only way of knowing. There, there's another way of knowing that he points out. He said, we ourselves, notice how he's being emphatic there in verse 18, heard this very voice born from heaven. So not only is he pointing to eyewitness testimony, he's pointing to empirical data. So he's pointing to things that I, I, I heard and I saw and I felt. He's pointing to um, this language of I use my sensory uh, information to, to gather information and I know that it's true. And how many of it? This is one of the ways that we know. We, we, we feel and we we sense and we observe and we try to understand. This is, this is how we know. And Peter is not deriding either of these ways of knowing. Peter does not have a problem with eyewitness testimony. Peter does not have a problem with empirical data. Those are good. That's how God created us. But Peter's saying, I, I, this is how we know. This is normal ways of knowing. Now, the question is, why does he refer here to this event of the transfiguration? I think there's a number of reasons why he refers here to the event of the transfiguration. One, Peter's a preacher, and so as a preacher, you learn to kind of take asides and go off on a tangent, and this is a great way to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. So you'll see here in verse 17, we have God the Father, and we have God the Son, His beloved Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we also have the majestic glory, the Holy Spirit. It's a great way to to teach the Trinity. I think you could also argue that this is a great illustration of the promises of God, that the Father makes this promise, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And Peter hears that promise for himself, and he knows that if we're partakers of the divine glory, then that promise is also ours. For all who are in Christ, we are also his beloved children with whom he is well pleased. So I think you could argue that. I think probably one of the reasons that Peter uses the event of the transfiguration is because it must have been one of the most profound moments of his life. It must have been an absolutely amazing foretaste of the glory that is to come. Where where Peter sees the, the son transfigured and he sees him standing with Moses and with Elijah and he, he, he sees the Holy Spirit descending upon him 
and nothing else and something else that could not be described as anything else than the majestic glory. And he hears the voice of the Father. And Peter is saying, this is, all this is good. I can tell you about this, and this should edify you. This is the normal ways of knowing. And then he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So whatever he's going to say here, he's comparing this to that. He's saying that this way of knowing that we're going to talk about in verses 19 through 21 this way of knowing is superior to those other ways of knowing, okay? So you know things through eyewitness testimony, you know things through empirical data, you know things by verifying, and those are all good. But Peter says there's something better. There, there's something, the, the, way that the, that the way that we know the scriptures are true is better, and it's the Spirit's way of knowing. It's the Spirit's way of knowing. It's the way that the Holy Spirit helps us to know and to trust in the Word of God. It's the Spirit's way of knowing. He says this in verse 19, we have the prophetic word. What does he mean by the prophetic word? Well, a couple of things are noteworthy about this. First, you'll notice here that he says the prophetic word singular. So he believes and he sees the whole Bible as one story. The whole Bible is one book. Occasionally you'll hear people say the Bible's an anthology. That's a bad analogy. The whole Bible is one story, one book, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And that you can see throughout the Old Testament, as you're reading, you can see that it's written with the end in mind. It's written with, by God and His providence. It's, it's written in such a way that it will point to and lead us to see Christ. So it's the singular prophetic word. Maybe you'd say, well, he's only talking there about the Old Testament. Well, that's actually not true. In the end of the, the book, in 2 Peter 3, he says this, Count the patience of our Lord salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks about them of these matters says, and this is, if ever you have trouble understanding Scripture, this is for you. These, there are some things in them, that being Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. So there are some things in the letter of Paul, Peter says, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. So Paul or Paul, Peter says, is on the same level as the other scriptures. Even though he is hard to understand sometimes, we can grant him that, he's on the same level as the other scriptures. So when Peter says the prophetic word, he's referring to the whole Bible. It's the whole Bible. Yes, it's many prophetic words. It's a, as he'll say later in verse 20, a prophecy of scriptures. That means there's Several prophecies that come from Scripture, but it's one singular prophetic word. And that singular prophetic word is more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. Now that word for confirmed is the same word that he used in verse 10, where he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm or to make certain your calling and election. Now here's the importance of this. Peter is saying, The promises of God upon which you rest your assurance. How you know that God is for you and not against you. 
how you know that he is your God and you are his people. God has made way and he's made known in a way that exceeds the normal ways of knowing that your assurance is not dependent upon eyewitness testimony and your assurance of your salvation is not dependent upon empirical data because sometimes those things can fail he's saying your assurance of your salvation is more fully confirmed than the best ways of knowing of man It says in 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the prophecy rises in your hearts. So Peter says we have the prophetic word, the scriptures, the the one Bible more fully confirmed, more assured that we know that it's true in a way that we don't know other things are true to which you would do well to pay attention. So how do we know that it's true? Well, we pay attention to it. And we stare at it. And we observe it and we ransack it for details and we try to probe its depths and we read it and we read it and we read it. And he says, you should do that. You should pay attention to that until this, as if you were following a candle on a path and a light for your feet. And then he uses this metaphor at the end of the verse, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So you, you can know that the prophetic word, the scripture, is more fully confirmed by paying attention to it and staring at it and saturating yourself in it and eating it and drinking it and living by it until that candle, that flicker, that nightlight becomes a dawn. When I used to live in Chicago, when I lived in Chicago for college and seminary, I would get up early and go for runs occasionally or stay up late till sunrise and go for runs. Different time. And I go for runs along the, the lake shore there. And uh, I would run along, there's a, there's a path along the lake shore there. And uh, and I would run, and it would be all morning light, just dim and twilight. You could barely see what's in front of you. And as I, as I would run, and I'm a slow runner, so it took a long time, you'd start to see the l- l- glimmers of light come across the horizon. And you, you, you look, and on the other side, on land side, you look up at the skyscrapers. And at the very tip top of the skyscrapers, you would see the, the sunlight from the dawn start to come over the horizon and hit that first. And as you'd run, the longer that you'd run, and the, longer, the, 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 the more the light would come over the horizon and it would come down the skyscrapers until at long last the sun would creep over the horizon and the glimmer and the shimmer of dawn would illuminate the whole beach. And Peter says, here's how you know Scripture's true. You stare at it and you absorb it and you read it, and you eat it, and you pay attention to it, and you don't take your eyes off of it until that sun comes over the horizon. Until you see the glimmer and the shimmer of dawn. That's how God makes his word known, because no other word can do that. No other word can shimmer and glimmer like dawn in our hearts. Nothing can do that. 
It's a way that defies explanation. It's a, it's a certainty that is superior to eyewitness testimony. It's a, it's a certainty that is superior to empirical data. That this, this assurance that we know, like if you have doubts about the Bible, maybe you've had this experience and you're, you're doubting about Scripture and then you open up the Bible and you read it and your doubts don't go away and yet they do. Because you can see Scripture shining in your heart and maybe you can't explain it but you just know that it's true maybe maybe there's some of you who are here this morning who would think man i've tried that i've tried staring at it and i just feel like it's not getting lighter well obviously in a 45 minute or 45 hour sermon I can't cover all the objections to the Bible, but I can tell you what is the most true in my experience. When people who who are trying to understand the Bible feel like they're not getting anywhere with it. It's because to do this requires humility. And oftentimes we want to come to Scripture and we want to tell Scripture what Scripture should say. And God doesn't play that game with us. God is not in the business of switching roles with us. And oftentimes when we come to Scripture and we want Scripture to say something and it's frustrating that it's not saying it, we, we miss out on all that is there for us because we're so fixated on the way that it lets down our expectations. You see, when Peter says here, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, he's relying on this understanding of Scripture that, that would tell us that when mankind fell, when mankind fell, when we, when we sinned against God, when, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, that all of creation was infected with the curse. And all of us was infected with the curse. There's no part of us which gets away clean. And that includes our hearts. And that includes our ability to even read Scripture. That's why Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding. Who's the they? The they is we. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Or 1 Corinthians 4.5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. That our hearts are a dark place. And if we're, if we're looking at the light and our eyes are closed, we'll never be able to see that sunrise. So I, I don't mean to demean anybody's sincere, honest doubts about Scripture this morning. But I do mean to say this. I've never met somebody who's approached Scripture humbly, submissively, patiently, habitually, and whose scripture has not yielded treasures and fruit for. I've just never met that person. It requires us, before we can read this word, to bow the knee and to admit and to acknowledge that he is king and we are not. And when we do that, when we're able and willing when we start from the place where we assume that it's true, when we, when we know that, 
nothing else could have that effect in our hearts except that it come from God. When that's our starting place, when, when, that when, when that's our approach, then I've just never met anybody who that tree planted by streams of living water fails to produce fruit. Why he says in the next verse, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what he's saying here is that when we approach this, when we come to it to stare at it and to look at it and to absorb ourselves with it and to be saturated with it and to eat it and to drink it and to to make it our own, to make it part of us, to, to penetrate it to our hearts, when we do that and we start from the place to assume, okay, if it's Scripture, it's not going to come from us. It's going to come from God. When, when, when we do that, then that's when the morning star rises in our hearts. Uh, he says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Prophecy, as we see in just another word for Scripture. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the reason he's saying that Scripture has this effect in our hearts. The reason he's saying that, that when we stare at it, it yields itself to us and makes the, the light come over the horizon. The reason for that is because it's inspired by God and it gets its authority from God. That it's, it's men spoke, so it's the words of man, but they're from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit as they're breathed along by the Father in the, in the voice of men. It's what the, we call inspiration. The, the scripture is inspired, and it's true, and it's trustworthy. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's breathed. And the word for breath in, script, in Greek is pneuma, and that's the same word for spirit. All Scripture is spirited, spirated, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture, he says, is from outside of us. It's from the the Latin phrase for this is extranos. It comes from outside of us. And therefore, the way to know it's true will not conform to this world. Scripture comes from outside of us. It comes from the mouth of God. And therefore, the way that we can know that it's true will not conform to the ways of this world. Let me explain it like this. If you examine Scripture, it will hold up to the strictest scrutiny of historical data. If you take it back and you examine it with an unbiased, neutral look at it, and you stare and you try to piece it apart, and you're honest, and you don't start from a place where you're prejudging it, and you're assuming that it's wrong, and you you come to it really genuinely trying to understand if it's true, you can quite easily see that it holds up. And it holds up in such a way that it holds up better than anything else. That 
the, the four Gospels, for example, hold up to the strictest acknowledgement of the ancient world of eyewitness testimony. It holds up that there's, there's nothing that you can do to examine it that would say that it's just not true. I've, I've looked and I can't find anything that would say that it's not true. And yet, that's not the way that we know Scripture is true. Because Scripture conforms to a different canon of knowing. It conforms to a different way of knowing. Because God himself authenticates it in our heart when we stare at it. When we absorb it and we eat it and we drink it and we get to know it, God himself stare, uh, makes us to know that it's true. Calvin says it this way, and this is in your bulletin. Owen said, if I read this whole quote, it'll be too long. So I'll just read part of it. Calvin says it this way. Let this point therefore stand, that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. That's the Greek word autopistos. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. In the certainty it deserves with us, it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. For even if it wins reverence for itself by its own majesty, it seriously affects us only when it is uh, sealed upon our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, illumined by his power, we believe neither by our own will nor by anyone else's judgment the scriptures from God, but above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God himself, that it has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. We seek no proofs, no marks of genuineness upon which our judgment may lean, but we subject our judgment and wit to it as to a thing beyond any guesswork. This we do, not as persons accustomed to seize upon some unknown thing, which under close scrutiny displeases them, but fully conscious that we hold the unassailable truth. Nor do we do this as those miserable men who habitually bind over their minds to the thraldom of superstition. But we feel that the undoubted power of his majesty lives and breathes there. By this power, we are drawn and inflamed knowingly and willingly to obey him. It also more vitally and more effectively than by mere human willing or knowing. We know scripture is true because God confirms it and assures us of it in our hearts. And maybe you're here and you're understanding what I'm saying. You're saying, how can something be true if it's self-authenticating, if it's autopistos, how can something be true if it tells us that it's true? Don't we need... But think about what you're asking here. Because if Scripture is itself from God, what other higher court of appeal are you going to appeal to? Is God going to say, well, you know, I do everything by the six rules of Robert's order. God created the world. If it's truly from God, it can't conform to, it can't be ultimately known, it can't be ultimately confirmed. If if by anything other than God himself, if scripture is true, if it truly is from God, then the only one who can tell us that it's true is God himself. 
Am I saying that we should never come to it with doubts? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is okay to have questions and to wrestle with those things. But you need to know that the only way you're going to know if Scripture is true is if you start by bowing the knee. I can argue a lot of people in such a way that I can win an argument. But I can't argue people into having a new heart. It begins with us bowing the knee and recognizing recognizing that if it comes from God, only God can make us to know that it's true. So let me give you six applications this morning. Six. Only six. But one of them has seven sub-applications. True story. One. God wants you to know the truth. God wants you to know the truth. God wants you to know what is true. He's not running from it. He's not hiding from it. God wants you to know the truth. Nobody here is afraid of what is true and it's false. God wants you to know what is really true. If you're wrestling with this this morning, start here. God wants you to know what is true. So know what is true. Two, God cares so much about your assurance and your salvation. God cares so much that you would know and have the promises that he's put them in Scripture. Think about that. He hasn't hidden them on the bottom of a rock somewhere. He didn't just show up to somebody at one point in history and hope that word caught. God wants you, not not some random other person that you can also figure, no, he wants you to know with the certainty of assurance about the promises of God. So much that he put it in Scripture. That he, he's preserved it in his word. That he's spoken it in the mouths of men. So you, you realize how much, he, you, do you realize how much that took for God to condescend to us? That he would speak eternal mysteries in the language of fallible human beings. It's how much God wants you to know his promises. In another place, Calvin calls it like God baby talks to us so that we'll understand the eternal mysteries of his will. God wants you to know his promises so much that he put it in scripture for you. Number three, to know these promises requires humility. To receive and to believe, to read, to absorb, to be saturated in, to soak it in, to take it in, to know these promises requires humility. 
It requires starting from a place that says, I need something outside of me to speak to me. It starts from a place of humility. Four. If you want the promises, if you want the promises, you must also take the commands. If you want the promises, you must also take the commands. See, it's really easy to grab onto the promises that are in Scripture. It's really easy to say, I want God to be my God. But it also means that you have to be his people. You cannot have the promises of the covenant without the obligations of the covenant. You can't have the promises of salvation without the sanctification that flows from it. You cannot have the joy of righteousness that comes through faith alone without the fruit that follows. If you want the promises that are in Scripture, you also must receive the commands. Number five, I don't know how we could grow spiritually if we were not soaked and saturated with this word. I just don't know how we could do that. I mean, this is, uh, you, you realize the promise that is here, especially in verse 19, that if we stare at the word, the, the flicker of candlelight will become the blaze of morning sun. I don't know how you can grow in any other way. The book of Psalms, Psalms 1 says it this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does he prospers. I don't know how you could ever hope to be that tree that produces fruit if you weren't planted by streams of living water. I just don't know how you could hope to grow as a Christian if you weren't in God's word. Number six. Not only does this passage tell us what scripture is, where it comes from, and how we can understand it. Uh, this passage also gives us indications about how to read it. It introduces for us a what we, we, we might call a hermeneutic, basic rules for interpretation. So let me give you seven of them. I warned you all. One, though it is made of many books... It is one book. So we should read the one book. Read the one book. Two. So read the whole book as one story. Two. Um, read it diligently and with effort. You, you catch that in verse 19? You would do well to pay attention. It's an ongoing verb. 
doesn't say you do well to look at it, crack it off your shelf every now and then. No, he says to, to pay attention to it. It's going to take effort. If you want to see the sun come over the horizon, it's going to require you to stare at it intently with effort. Uh, in, in second, um, Thessalonians, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, and apparently there were some people who had stopped working, and they were just kind of mooching off everybody else in the church. And Paul says, Paul says, if they don't work, they don't eat. How can we expect anything different to come from the Word of God? If we're not willing to work at it and labor in it and strive, how can we expect anything else? Three, pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details. Pay attention not only to the big picture, not only to the the story from beginning to end, but pay attention to the details. Absorb yourself in it. You know, God God allows us to have questions about Scripture because he's trying to lead us deeper into Narnia. He's trying to lead us deeper into his word. So pay attention to the details. Work hard to, to, to ask questions and to make observations, to, to pick piece apart from piece. Make effort to pay attention to the details. Number four. Read this for the promises. Read it for the promises. See how every page of Scripture implies or explicitly states the promises of God. Read it for the promises. Read it and look to see His precious and very great promises that He has put there for us. Number five. As you're reading it for the promises, also observe the imperatives. Also observe the imperatives. Look at the ways, the things that God has said to do, to do. We love verses 4 and 5 from the first chapter, or or verse 3 and 4. We can't skip over verse 5 then, which says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So not only read it for the promises, number four, but number five, read it for the imperatives. Number six, read it prayerfully. Read it prayerfully. Read it asking that God, if God's the one who makes it shine in our hearts, God's the one who, who read it prayerfully. Read, it, read, God, read God's word and say, God, will you show this to me? Would you reveal this to me? Would you help me to see it? Read it prayerfully. Number seven. That requires that we're going to read it submissively. That we are going to acknowledge and start from a place of submission and humility. That we're going to start from a place where where we acknowledge where we acknowledge that it's true and where we ask God to to make it known to us because we know we don't have a corner on the truth. And that means at times it's going to correct us. Have you ever noticed how quickly Scripture reads us instead of us reading Scripture? 
how quickly Scripture shines a light on our dark hearts. But if it does that, that means it will not only correct us, but also comfort us. Not only afflict us, but assure us. Not only strike us down, but raise us up. And that doesn't happen unless we read it submissively. Number eight. I know I said seven. Number eight. I prepared extra. Read it habitually. Read it habitually. Again, verse 19, pay attention is a present tense verb. It means that we ought to continue to pay attention to it. Read it habitually. Read it whenever you have free time, but do it in the morning. Just my advice. Read it, start with 10 or 15 minutes a day, and start with one of the four Gospels if you're not doing that. And pretty soon, 10 minutes will become 15, and 15 will become 20. Christians, we know Scripture is true because God tells us it's true, because God reveals it to be true in our hearts. And that ought to be enough confidence and enough assurance for us. Amen? There's a great story about a great theologian who um, was doing one of his last tours, and he was lecturing at different, different universities. And you get this question from time to time. If you could summarize everything you've written into one book, what would you say? And he'd say, or into one sentence, he'd say, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Father in heaven, we thank you that you cared enough that we would know that we are your children, that you put it in a book. And you gave us eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Father, I, I know this might have been a, a stretching sermon for us because we, often we want to come to scriptures and make scripture conform to us. But Father, we pray that we would conform to scripture. Father, we know that this is all because you want us to have assurance. You want us to be sure of your precious and very great promises. And so, Father, we pray that this word would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be like the tree that is planted by streams of living living water, that though the storm comes, it is not bowed over, and though the heat scorches, it does not wither, and that it produces fruit for the weary, heavy laden. So in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.